My prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. Let me pray for us as we begin our new series in Philippians. If you'd pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is powerful. It's living and active. It is changing us. It is transforming us. We pray, Spirit, that this morning that you would take my, my feeble words, my inadequacy, and, and change hearts. Uh, thank you for gathering your people again to worship you. Uh, we pray that we would honor you with uh, our thoughts. We pray we would honor you with our speech. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that he loves us, and out of the overflow of that love, we are able to love others and him. Be with us this morning. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Well, my name is Jeff Jamison. If I've not met you, uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so grateful to be a part of City Church. Um, I've been just the beneficiary of uh, your ministry to me and my family, even in our short time here. Uh, I've been able to get to know a little bit better uh, a lot of you, and I'm just incredibly thankful. I've been saying that uh, even though I, I know that you're 3D, you've actually become 4D. Uh, to me and my family as we've learned more of your history, more of your stories. And so I'm grateful for what I've already uh, learned about you and have been able to worship the Lord because of you. And I'm looking forward to many more years to come. If you would give me uh, maybe two or three minutes to do some, uh, well, I'll call it family business right off the top, uh, and then we'll, we'll dig into Philippians. Um, a lot of you were visiting this morning. Uh, some of you have been visiting only for the past few weeks, and so if you'll forgive me, I'm going to say a few names uh, right now, and you might not know who these people are, but for a lot of you who have been a part of City Church for years, you're going to know these names, and I want to honor uh, some men who have been a part of this place for a while. I had lunch with Ben Connolly a few weeks ago. And I wanted to have lunch with him to thank him primarily for uh, planting City Church about 15 years ago. Um, and I had uh, a phone call a few weeks ago with Will Boston, who was a pastor here a few years ago. And I wanted to thank him for his leadership during a, a difficult time, uh, in both in their lives, he and Natalie, and then in the life of the collective church during a pandemic. Uh, but the foundation that those two men laid for City Church, uh, the fruit is still being seen today. And so I wanted to honor them publicly for uh, the work that they have done on behalf of the Lord for City Church. But probably, and what I, what I would uh, certainly uh, want to encourage, more importantly than even that, is I want to uh, honor Chris and Andrew as your pastors. Uh, Andrew, you have uh, been an incredible student of the word, a shepherd of these people. You are an incredible father and husband, and we are all better for you being here. We are spiritually formed by you uh, in incredible ways. We just went through that again a few minutes ago, so I want to thank you, brother, for the labors that you've had here for the past several years. We love you, I love you, and I'm thankful for you. And then I want to, I want to thank uh, our brother, Chris. Uh, Chris, I love you. You have poured yourself out for City Church for uh, almost 15 years. 
And I uh, am certainly telling people that the grass is green and the sky is blue by saying that you uh, are important here to us, uh, that you and your family are a blessing to us. Uh, Chris told me on the phone this week that you preached 77 times, which is a perfectly biblical number, 7-7. So grateful for that over the past year and a half. Um, brother, you have, you have fed the lambs. You fed the lambs at City Church, and you did that while feeding your family and working a second-time job, a second full-time job, and I'm incredibly thankful for you. We love you, uh, and so we just want to honor um, you and Andrew this morning. Okay, yes, please. I'm excited to jump into the book of Philippians, and uh, we're going to be, as we just read in the first 11 verses of Philippians, uh, this is uh, a a fantastic book. Paul uh, is writing a very joy-filled letter uh, to the Philippians, and what we're calling this series is uh, a life worthy of the gospel, life worthy of the gospel. Actually borrow that from verse 27 of chapter 21 later on when Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel, the gospel is good news. Most of us know that it's good news. Uh, the gospel, uh, the Greek word that Paul uses for gospel here in this letter is going to be used more in this letter than any other New Testament book. So uh, I take that, uh, that this is very important to Paul. He wants us to see the gospel very clearly in the book of Philippians. Because of the gospel, because Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we actually now have life. We have life where there was once no life. We have life now. To live worthy of the gospel is to live is Christ. Paul is going to talk about that later on. To live is Christ. Christ our Lord. Christ our Savior. Christ our righteousness. Christ our peace. There's a partnership in Christ. It's a partnership for Christ by Christ, as we press on toward the day of Christ. We are citizens of Christ's kingdom. So how do we live lives worthy of being in that kingdom? I think this book is going to help us see over the next 11 weeks what it means to live a life worthy of Christ and his gospel. I want to think about these things together through the lens of meaning. The lens of meaning. Meaning comes from a life worthy of the gospel, a life worthy of Christ and his kingdom. So what is the meaning of life, right? We ask ask that question all the time. You might have even asked that question this week. A lot of times we ask that question out of a sense of desperation. What What are we doing here? What is this all about? I appreciated so much, as I know you guys did last week, Chris's sermon on how do we build a worldview? What does it look like to build a worldview as believers? Building a Christian worldview actually gets us in the direction of meaning. It gets us in that direction of thinking about what is the meaning of our life? How do we make sense of everything around us? Well, if we believe the story of redemption is the true story, that does not end in death, that other stories try 
The other stories that we hear try, but they ultimately fail to address the greatest human desire, that desire of being with the triune God, because those stories fail to sufficiently address the problem of sin and evil. That is our biggest problem, is sin. All other worldviews and stories ultimately end in meaninglessness. Only the gospel ends with meaning. It begins with meaning. It is embodied meaning. What do I mean by all other stories end in meaninglessness? Well, for example, I'm sure that you know someone, maybe even have friends or family that you've spoken to recently who live out of the story that attaches meaning to just having the right friends or maybe just having the right job or the right experiences. This is where meaning is found. When you find all those things, if I find the right people and the right things to do, then I'm going to be set. Except that the constant disconnect and the constant discontent is because of that God-shaped hole in our heart. There's a God-shaped hole in all of our hearts and only he can fill it. And so what ends up happening is the modern-day Ecclesiastes. It's all vanity. doesn't matter how many friends you have. doesn't matter how many experiences you have. If you don't have the Christian gospel, it's meaningless. Since the fall, humans have been trying to create their own meaning apart from God. But friends, apart from the gospel of Christ, there is no true meaning. Do you believe that this morning? Paul's going to remind us over and over again through this book that the gospel revolutionizes the meaning of life. Christ is our salvation. He's our deliverance from sin. He transforms our relationships. He transforms our speech, our suffering, how we steward our resources. And all these things are playing out here in the local church. This is the forefront. This is where we are citizens in God's kingdom seeing these transformative things happen. And so I want to talk about today, verses 1 through 11. Uh, meaningful friendship is what I'm titling this sermon. If you want to write that at the top of the, the notebook that you're taking notes on this morning, meaningful friendship. And here's the main idea. God brings us deep friendship for the furthering of the gospel and to sanctify his people God brings us deep friendship for the furthering of the gospel and to sanctify his people. Now, hopefully, as we just heard Jason read this passage, uh, hopefully, right off the bat, you can hear that this is a letter written to close friends. Paul absolutely loves these people, and he cannot help himself. He, he cannot help how much he loves these people. And Paul is going to give us a helpful lens to view what makes for a meaningful friendship. So what do we make of the topic of friendship? Chris talked about it just a few minutes ago as our desires here at City Church is for us to all to grow in deep friendship. How important are deep friendships? Are they even necessary to live a life worthy of the gospel? Well, perhaps we can learn something from a great theologian, Cookie Monster, who recently tweeted, and I know already you're writing me off that I follow Cookie Monster on Twitter. It's okay. 
because he's pretty profound sometimes. This is what Cookie Monster said. He said, there is more to life than cookies, but cookies are still a big part of it. <laughs> Maybe if we're looking for a more sophisticated thought, we could turn to J.C. Ryle, who was an English pastor in the 1800s, and he said this, friendship halves our sorrows and doubles our joys. Friendship halves our, our troubles and doubles our joys. Paul's testimony about the Philippians here in this passage is that while he is writing this letter from prison, and we cannot move past that, he is writing this letter from prison, but his testimony is, you have cut my sorrows in half, but you have doubled my joy. And Paul does this by describing the prayer that he has for them and about them. That's what the first 11 verses of Philippians is. So here's how I'm going to break down the message today. Uh, we're going to look at who Paul is praying for, how he's praying for them, what he's praying for them, and why he's praying that for them. So we're looking at the who, the how, the what, and the why. Let's start with the who. Who is Paul praying for? Who is he praying a prayer of thanksgiving for? Well, let's read again verses three through five. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's praying for all of them. He's praying for all the saints in Philippi. He's remembering them with joy in his prayers. Again, Paul is writing this from a Roman prison. This is about 10 years after he planted the church at Philippi. This was the first uh, church plant in Europe, by the way. And if you want to do some homework this week, if you want to look at the book of Acts chapter 16, that's the story. That's the story of the church at Philippi being planted. And when you read Acts 16, you'll read about Lydia who was uh, in a prayer meeting and is converted. Her heart is opened up. You'll read about a demon-possessed slave girl who is healed. You'll read about the Philippian jailer who is saved and his whole family baptized. This is how the church at Philippi is started. And it's these people, it's Lydia, the jailer, it's the slave girl and others that Paul is remembering in his prayers. Isn't that incredible? You read Acts 16, and here we are in the letter uh, to the Philippians, and these are the very people that Paul is thinking about as he writes this letter. And he writes to them because he says they have had a partnership in the gospel from the start. And what does that mean? Well, the word, the Greek word for partnership is koinonia. Some of you may even be familiar with that Greek word. Some churches are named koinonia. Koinonia, which actually could mean a variety of different uh, community or, or, or fellowship, is, is here. Well, very much so, I think, Paul is referring to koinonia as a deep friendship. Not just a business relationship, not just, not just a family relationship, but I, I think Paul is seeing the koinonia, the partnership in the gospel, as deep, meaningful friendship. These are friends that are joining with him and proclaiming the gospel and praying for his ministry in the gospel and suffering with him for the gospel and financial giving to further the gospel. This is the partnership 
that he is talking about. These are good, godly, long-suffering friends. These are friends that have poured themselves out with Paul for the gospel and in support of him through prayers, trials, and funds. Paul, under house arrest in Rome, feels seen by them in almost every imaginable way. He, he cannot help but praise God for his dear friends. A couple weeks ago, Chris and I actually had lunch with a uh, pastor here in Fort Worth who God has called to do a, a really remarkable thing right now, a really, a, a really hard thing. Uh, this brother has been called by God to wind down the church that he is pastoring. The church that he is leading is, is dying, and, and he feels called to help them end their season in the most God-honoring way. But you can imagine how heartbreaking that is, that the people that you've been leading for years, the people that you've preached to for years, uh, you're having to have this hard conversation with them that the time has come. The time has come for this church to end, but for a new one to take its place. And as we were talking with him over lunch, you could hear the sadness, as you would imagine, in this brother's voice. You could see it on his face. This is a heavy season for him. And so Chris and I asked him, do you have, do you have people in your life? Do you have any friends that are speaking life into you right now? And he did. We were so encouraged. He said there's a, there's a few uh, people in his church while some in his church, while he's been having this conversation, have not had a good reaction, you can imagine how emotional this is, and some people have simply not responded well. He said, there's a group of guys in my church that see me, they see what I'm going through, they see the heartache that this is, and they love me. They encourage me, they ask me how I'm doing, they've seen this before in the past, these are older saints, and they are for him and with him. What a beautiful thing. Do you have friends like that? Do you have friends in your life where things are really hard, like Paul in a prison, or this brother who's winding down his church? This week, my, my son broke his arm. Uh, Jack broke his arm playing football. We had to go to Cook Children's. I know a lot of you have been to Cook Children's in this room. Uh, you know the, the gift that that hospital is to our city. Uh, and it's in a hospital where so often when we are at our lowest, we see the people show up in incredible ways. Friends uh, that uh, are going to be there for you. And every time I've been to any hospital, but certainly this week as we were at Cook, I think and we're, we're here for a broken arm, which is bad. Uh, but I, I think of all the different families that go through Cook with much worse things than a broken arm. And you look around, you look in the waiting room, you walk down the hall and you see friends and family coming. It's because they see them, because they want to move toward them in a time of need. That's koinonia. That's deep friendship. And we want to see more of it in our lives. We want to see more of it here at City Church. Paul is thanking God for the Philippian church. So that is the who. Now, about, now what about the how? How is Paul praying for the Philippians? Let's read verses 6 through 8 again. Verse 6 says this, And I am sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is the most remarkable part of this entire passage because we get an insight into the depth and breadth and height of the love that Paul has for his friends, for these people. How does Paul pray when he remembers the Philippians? He prays with great confidence and with deep affection. Do you see it there in verse 6? Great confidence. This, this is a very popular verse. Uh, this book actually has many uh, what we might call coffee cup verses, uh, verses that you see maybe on billboards. This is one of them, verse 6. Uh, actually, in Kid City, uh, all this month, our kids are learning this verse. It's probably a verse that you've actually said at some point to encourage someone or as you are praying for someone. The work that God has begun will go to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. This is the confidence Paul has. It's anchored in the assurance and perseverance of God's work in them that's incomplete until Christ returns. Our hope is in Christ's good work and only in being united with him can we dare have good works. What is this good work that Paul is talking about? Well, this good work in them is being the constant partners in the gospel. It's the fruit of the Spirit displayed in them. Their faith had given birth to fruit that showed up in the manners in which they were living, that they were living lives worthy of the gospel. This is what God was doing in the Philippians, and this is why Paul has ultimate confidence. Paul is not wondering Paul is not wondering if the Philippians will continue to love God, love him, and love each other. He's not wondering if that's going to happen. He knows that they will because of God. Despite the hostile culture, despite the suffering and persecution, these are friends that are growing together into a fuller picture of gospel friendship until the day of Christ. God finishes what he starts God always finishes what he begins. And family, he is not finished with us. He's not finished with us becoming more and more like the sun until the sun comes again. Paul prays with confidence. I think that's what verse 6 is showing. But then he also is praying with deep affection. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul is talking about holding them in his heart, how he yearns for them with the affections of Christ Jesus. He says it's right for him to feel this way. He said that God is his witness to these feelings about his friends. That's remarkable language. He talks about them sharing in God's grace with him as he proclaims and defends the gospel in Rome. This is the ground for Paul's deep affection in Christ Jesus for the Philippians. In fact, Paul could not use more passionate language here in describing his friends. 
He could not use more passionate words to describe how much he loves the Philippians. So the word there in verse 8, that affection of Christ Jesus, this word literally means entrails or the entire inward parts of the chest and stomach. The entrails. So Paul is loving his guts out for these people. That's what he's saying. He's loving his heart out for them. Have you ever been loved by anyone this way? Have you ever experienced the love of anyone this way? Have you ever told anyone, I love you with all my entrails? Don't say that, but that's what Paul is meaning. I love you with everything I have. And he's not just talking about this. In fact, he's not talking about the language of love between a husband and a wife. You see, a feature of meaningful friendship is the strong desire close friends have for one another and the comfort to let each other know about it. Paul's not embarrassed. Paul's not embarrassed. Let me ask you, does this make you uncomfortable? This type of language, this type of passionate language, does it make you uncomfortable? We live in a time where this type of language has been, uh, by and large, cheapened. It's been sexualized. You would only talk this way with someone if they were a, a lover or a potential lover, and often it's sappy and shallow. That's what we think of when we think of words this strong. Brothers and sisters, I believe it's time to reclaim a biblical view of friendship, and so do your elders. And so do you, that you desire to be able to have this type of friendship and to be able to speak of this type of friendship with one another. And this is, as as Chris mentioned earlier, the elder's desire for this type of friendship, this type of koinonia, if you will, at City Church to continue to grow. Would it be true that singles and married couples alike could experience this? That yes, there is something definitely unique to the love expressed within the covenant of marriage. But again, that's not what Paul is talking about here. The question that we have is, will a single person, either always single or newly single, be able to step into fellowship here at City Church and experience the powerful love of Christian friendship that the world is telling him or her only exists in romantic relationships? That's the question. And the answer is yes. The answer is yes because I've already seen it happen here. I've already heard stories about that, how that is happening here at City Church. And our prayer is that it would continue to grow, that we would grow together in rich love for one another. I want to take the pressure off some of you. Some of you might be sitting in your seat right now thinking there is no way that I'm going to be able to be best friends with everybody at City Church. There's no way I'm going to love my entrails out for everybody at City Church. And I'm going to tell you that you are right. Uh, We cannot be best friends with everybody. We can't, but we can develop a culture of deep friendship here at City Church. This means that you're not gonna be best friends with every member of the church You will be closer with some than others. I'm sure that Paul himself had certain people in his mind that he was really close with as he penned this letter. But even as he shared 
his affection for the entire church, we know that we will be closer with certain individuals over others. But is it a culture of deep friendship that's developing? That is the question. Now, Paul says that this affection is the affection of Christ Jesus. So this is not an affection that you or I can muster on our own. This is not something that we can formulate just out of our own mind. The way that Paul loves the Philippians and the way that we are called to love one another is a love that Christ has for us. Christ yearns for us, family. Christ holds us in his heart. Christ literally, literally poured his heart out for us on the cross. So do you believe in meaningful friendship? Then you must know the friend that brings meaning to everything, and his name is Jesus. Listen once again to John 15, 15. This is what Chris read earlier as we were talking about transformative Christian friendships in our discipleship groups. John 15, 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus calls us his friends. He's saying something significant about what it means to even be a friend. It's a love that exists within the Trinity. You see that? The Father making himself known to the Son, who's making himself known to us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. What that means is that actually the the first sign of friendship in our Bible is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. It is out of the Trinitarian friendship that the world was created. The love that exists in godly friendship has power and meaning. John 15 takes place the day before Jesus is nailed to a cross with our sin to save us from death into life. He chooses this moment in redemptive history on the day before he is slaughtered to tell his disciples, you are my friends. No longer do I call you servants, you are my friends. The king is our friend. He has brought us into the internal friendship with the Father and Spirit. He makes all things known to us just like a good friend does. Jesus is the one who enjoyed eternal friendship with the Father and Spirit but was unfriended on a Friday 2,000 years ago and received the wrath of God reserved for an enemy. But he did it willingly and joyfully for all who have come to believe in him. No love is greater than that of Jesus, our friend. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Kingdom rebels made kingdom citizens, orphans, made sons and daughters, enemies, made friends. Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother despite our wandering hearts. 
This means that every time we walk in the gift of repentance, when we've betrayed our friend Jesus and then turn back to confess our sin and receive forgiveness by faith, our communion, our koinonia with Jesus is restored. The gospel means there is hope for our broken friendships. If reconciliation with God is possible through the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, then reconciliation is possible with one another. There's so much to say about this rich topic. There's so much to think about the friendship of the Lord. But let's keep going because we need to continue to look at not only who Paul has been praying for, how he is praying for them, but now let's take a look at what he is praying for with the Philippians. If we go back to Philippians verses 9 through 11, it says this. Paul says, it, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul wants their love to continue to grow. He wants their love to be rooted in truth and wisdom so that they can make good choices and be made perfect and for all to be able to see the fruit that comes from obedience through and to Christ. You see, godly love that Paul is calling them to is an ever-increasing love and it's an ever-informed love. It knows God and it knows his word. It's the renewal of our minds unto the things of the Lord. And it's a discerning love. It's an informed love. It's a discerning love. It's a wise love that takes the truth and the knowledge of the truth and applies it to life in order to love best. Our love should know what is right and what is best in any scenario. And it should know it with any person that we're sitting with. It should produce blamelessness and purity and it should bear the fruit of righteousness. The fruit that comes from making right decisions. The fruit that comes from following God's law in obedience. I mentioned uh, John 15, 15 just a minute ago, but if we back up only one verse to John 15, 14, he says this, Jesus, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Meaningful friendships encourage one another toward obedience to Jesus Christ. And in doing so, bear more and more fruit of righteousness. These are the very things that we desire when we talk about transformative Christian friendship here at City Church. These are the very things that Chris was referring to, how we so desire for your discipleship group and your life here at City Church to be that place where this type of friendship can take place and grow. Where God himself is glorified, where it is rooted in his word and where wisdom is growing and where encouragement is growing and where gospel maturity is taking place. In this chapter, Paul helps us to see how these friendships are Godward. He starts immediately by thanking God for his friends. We see how these friendships are intimate we see how these friendships are generous. They're marked by generosity. And we see that they are maturing friendships. 
These are not stagnant friendships. These are friendships that are growing in their love. These are friends, like I hope that you have, who are going to point you to Christ so that you'll look more like Christ. That's sanctification. Growing in Christ to look more like Christ. There's a robustness to transformative Christian friendship. I don't think that many of us would argue in this room that there is uh, an epidemic, a crisis of loneliness in our world. We don't have to look far. Maybe even some of us here this morning are struggling with loneliness, with feeling lonely. Maybe this has been a, a, an extended lonely season as it's been for so many people seeing what our world has been through over the past two years. The gospel attacks loneliness. The gospel attacks loneliness. The fullest expression of Christianity is found in the friendships and communion within the local church. Loneliness is something that we should address with the gospel. But I think a potentially bigger problem than even loneliness itself is is not no friendships, but shallow friendships. What do shallow friendships look like? Well, in, in every friendship, every friendship that you've ever had, any friendship that any family member or friend, believing or non-believing, has had, has enjoyed the feature of being known and being loved. At, at its core, that's what all human friendships want, to be known, to be loved. Most friendships are centered around shared interests, common activities, a desire to, be, uh, a desire to belong. All this is part of being human. All this is just part of being a human being. You want to be loved, known, and feel like you have a belonging in this life. But what we are seeing more and more is an obsession with self, right? An obsession over me, a me-centeredness. So this is making friendships increasingly transactional in our world, transactional and brief. Here's what I mean by that. If, if, if you can help me become the best version of me that I feel like I need, if you can give me what I want, if you can make me happy in any scenario, then I'll stay in friendship with you. You're a good friend. You make me feel good. You scratch every itch I have. If you don't do that, I'm out. If you fail to do that at any point, I'm done. But friends, God is calling us into meaningful friendship that is not self-interested, self-obsessed, or self-worshipping, but is self-giving, self-dying, and self-forgetting. That's the difference. That, that is meaningful friendship, the love of God working itself out in relationships with one another. And that is truly, that is truly what we are designed for. So what can this look like for us? What does it look like to be in meaningful friendship? What does it look like to be in transformative Christian friendship? Maybe a great place to start is where Paul is starting here in the book of Philippians, and that is with prayer. Do you pray for your friends? And, and when you pray for them, do you tell them? Chris said this a couple of weeks ago as we wrapped up 3 John. Do you pray for your friends, and when you pray for them, do you let them know you're praying for them? 
That's a great place to start with having meaningful friendship. Meaningful friendship could simply look like being present. Do you realize how powerful the ministry of presence is? To sit with someone, maybe not even saying anything, but just sitting with someone. Sitting with someone and weeping with those who are weeping or rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. Friends, these are the things that we will all remember in our last days. We will remember the people who were meaningful in our life that showed up in these types of ways. You would think that the Apostle Paul is, I don't know what you think of Paul, but I think of uh, uh, obviously a uh, fantastic theologian, someone who the Spirit uh, anointed as an apostle to write words of Scripture that were lofty and high and full of incredible Christian doctrine. Uh, we read the letters of Paul and we are, we are filled with just incredible orthodoxy and knowledge, and yet... If we read about his final thoughts before he dies, specifically in the book of 2 Timothy, which is the last letter that Paul writes that we have in our Bible, he's writing his beloved friend Timothy, and he says this, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Do your best to come to me soon, Timothy. Do your best to come before winter. Paul's final words were to a friend that simply said, I miss you, please come see me. That's meaningful friendship. We've looked at who, how, and what, and now the why. Why does Paul pray for the Philippians this way? Well, it's the end of verse 11, the very last few words. It's to the glory and praise of God. A life worthy of the gospel that brings meaning to friendship is ultimately for the name and fame of Jesus. God is glorified by transformative Christian friendship. If someone were to drop in randomly to your discipleship group this week, or if someone were to eavesdrop on a lunch that you're having with a friend, would they end up praising God? That might be a good diagnostic for us. Would they say, this love, this affection that I'm witnessing, that I'm hearing, could only be from God? Would our friendships be the occasion to worship Christ? Friends, he has started the good work of meaningful friendship here at City Church. He's he's started that. He started that. And he's going to bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to have friends loving one another with the affection of Christ, of friends praying for each other, of friends growing into the likeness of Christ until the day he returns. That day, on that day, Jesus will not cut our sorrows in half, but he will remove them completely. On that day, he will not double our joys, family, but will multiply them infinitely forever and ever in the presence of not just our Savior, 
Not just our Lord, not just our King, but our friend. That's who he is. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you in Christ, covered by his blood and his righteousness, that we might dare have your attention in the throne room. Spirit, you have given us affections for Jesus Christ. We're so grateful that Jesus calls us his friends and that he has given us the ability to be good friends to one another, to be a part of meaningful friendship, to be able to be transformed in the love that we have for one another and be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. Father, will you help us? Will you help us where we have not been good friends? Will you help us where we don't feel like we need good friends? Will you show us the importance of the church and how you are doing this work and desire to do this work and complete us on the day that you come back? And we anxiously await that day. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.